I'm sure this morning I'm not preaching about work and money, <clears throat> contrary to what the probably deacons and elders would want. I'm also not preaching about missions, which probably surprises a few, Gareth included. Even though I'm a missionary, you know, why isn't it the first thought in my mind? Well, it is. You get that next week, right, Gareth? Where's Gareth? Is he here this morning? Um, next week is our missions conference. Uh, starts Saturday evening and Sunday morning. You have a special uh, insert or separate sheet for that, so I'll remind you about that. But this morning, providentially, God laid on my heart, and you might not understand how that works. I don't always understand it myself. Psalm 3. Um, I actually first was intrigued by this psalm by a video series by Paul David Tripp, which is on the Sunday School. It's actually a different video series. <clears throat> and it intrigued me because of the context in which David wrote Psalm 3. It's stated in the very first line. Let's look at that. Psalm 3. In your pew Bibles, on the normal pew Bibles, it's on page 448. Uh, and the large print Bible is on page 572. It's a very great psalm, especially providentially for what we have experienced recently, uh, both in our own community and in other places. Psalm 3, beginning at verse 1. Actually, beginning with the subtitle, if you see it right under, it's actually, in the Hebrew Bible, it's a part of verse 1. Uh, but the English version decided not to make it a part of verse 1. It should be. It begins, a psalm of David when he fled from, his Ab from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept, awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be upon your people. Selah. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you like David. Maybe we don't even realize it. We are hurting. We are fleeing. Maybe not physically like David was. We are uncertain of the future and what it holds. We come because we are a people, we are individuals who need to know that you're there. Who need to be able to communicate that to others who are suffering, that you are, your presence is with us and you are here in a way that only those who know you personally can understand. 
Oh, Lord, may your spirit who is present in a mighty way speak through your word, through what you want to teach us about looking to you in trust when all else seems to be failing, to look to you and trust in you. Do that, Lord, this morning, that we would say the Lord was present. The Lord spoke today by his mighty spirit into my heart. Lord, do that for your glory, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Notice, I read that very first part. Sometimes you probably skip those little pre-introductory comments that are, if you're in your Bible, it's probably got a, a title to the psalm. How many of your Bibles have a title to the psalm? See, Presbyterians can raise your hands. Um, and then right under the title, there's a little script. And almost every psalm is that way. You probably skip it. Don't skip it. Uh, sometimes it's just a, you know, says it's a, a something for the, for the choir director or something like that. But sometimes it's very significant, and here it is. Here it's very significant because it tells us the context in which David wrote this psalm. Look at it. He was fleeing from his son Absalom. Why? Because Absalom was over, trying to overthrow him from being king. Absalom had been very uh, sneaky, had uh, persuaded a lot of the other leaders of Israel at that time to follow him. He had convinced many of the fighting men, sort of the army, to make him king. And so he had enough for him that they came to David and said, now you can read all about this in 2 Samuel chapter 15 if you want to. Actually, if you begin back at 14, you kind of lead into it. But 2 Samuel 15, it talks about this situation. So much so that they come to King David and they say, Absalom is trying to overthrow you. And he's going to kill you. So David takes those who are faithful to him and leaves Jerusalem in order to save his life. Now part of the blame is Absalom's own fault. Because he had not disciplined Absalom. Absalom, not too many chapters before this, had killed his brother in revenge for what the brother had done to his sister. And so he killed him, and David knew it, but David did nothing against Absalom. And then you know the situation. Look at, I mean, what kind of example had David given to his family? He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, had had Bathsheba's husband killed, basically, by sending him to the front of the line and telling the army to leave him there so he'd be killed. I mean, maybe even at this point, David kind of was like, maybe this is God getting back to me, punishing me. And so maybe the result of what David is experiencing is because of his own problems as not being a good parent. The Sunday School, the series on parenting by Paul David Tripp is excellent. But we're all failures as parents, right? But what is David's response in this situation? This is what we learn in Psalm 3. Actually, Psalm 4 is believed to be in the same venue. What do we learn about how David responds to such a terrible situation? 
where he's being pursued. He's had to leave his throne. He's had to leave Jerusalem. How does David respond in this situation? How do we respond when terrible things happen? That's the point. How does David respond? He responds by saying, I know I can depend upon God, my Savior. I don't have to understand everything, but I know I can depend upon God. Now, you and I may not have the same situations like David, where we have a a spouse or even a parent fleeing, trying to kill us. But there are many human situations like this where great tragedy happens, and we have to think, how do we respond? How do we bring words of comfort, words of wisdom into people's lives? Now, there's four points to this sermon. The first one is this. It's a fact. God's presence is doubted during difficult difficult situations. God's presence is doubted when problems exist. Where was God? Where is God when this is happening? Why would God allow this to happen? So David is basically fleeing, as I've said. And many are doubting that God is going to help him. But we're going to see how we should respond based on what David does. Just think of some of the problems you have. Think of some of the situations that you have. Think of how you respond when great difficulties come into your life. Or... How do you respond when great difficulties come into the lives of others? Think about if you were living in Florida near the Parkland School. What would you be saying to people when they say, God must not be good or he would not let this happen? What would you be saying? What would you be thinking? Or as some of you know, the mother, friends of the uh, Wilcoxes, um, Marbury Balsham, who was killed yesterday at the foot of Lookout Mountain. What would you say to her family, her husband and children? What do we think and what do we do in difficult situations? People have a right to be angry. People have a right to wonder if God is good. But what they need is someone to come and love and comfort them who knows that God is good even when it doesn't make sense. They need people to come into their life who knows that God is their hope. God is their comfort. Some of the most hurtful situations in life are when those you trust turn against you. When those that you think are on your side 
end up not being on your side. Some of you may remember the situation with Enron. Anybody remember that? Enron was a large corporation in the petroleum industry. And because they mishandled their money, they actually, the money that people had been putting into retirement, through their retirement fund, they took it and they lost almost all of their retirement. The very people that were working for Enron thought they could trust the people that were running it, and instead those people hurt them. Or Becky and I know people that were invested in a, uh, in a uh, what do I call it, a uh, fund called Cornerstone. It was actually started by the PCA. It was where people would give money to Cornerstone and they would use it for helping churches to new churches to buy buildings to get a loan or churches that wanted to expand they could borrow money from cornerstone we know people that lost hundreds of thousands of dollars millions of dollars was lost because the people who ran cornerstone mishandled it and invested poorly and it was all lost they went bankrupt what do we say when those situations happen and the people that we think we can trust do things to harm us what do we say how do we justify God as being a good God when those things happen? Well, that's probably what David was feeling. Look at verse 1 and 2, what he says. Look at how he responds to those. Look at what he says. Many are saying, verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation, there is no deliverance for him and God. God is not present for David. David does not, cannot rely upon God. God is not to be the one to help him. But the very thing you need and others need when things are not going well is somebody to come and say, God can help you. God is there. The men in our discipleship group are studying this book, Got Your Back. It's really good. And in this, he tells the story of something that we need to remember, how we need to come alongside people, even in their worst hours. He tells the story, and this is how it goes. Jim and, Bell were, Jim and Bill were best friends who enlisted together to fight in World War I. During the long, muddy days of trench warfare in Europe, the battle became a stalemate. Every so often, the men would be ordered over the top to move up to the next trench. But in this new era of machine gun, row down upon row, many would be mowed down. On one particular occasion, Jim and Bill were ordered over the top to advance to the next trench. Enemy, enemy fire broke out, and Jim fell mortally wounded. Bill worked his way back in retreat to the previous trench, with his commanding officer. He could hear Jim. He could hear Jim out on the battlefield crying, and he wanted to go rescue him. But his commanding officer said, no, don't risk your life. Didn't you see where he was hit? He's a goner. But when the commanding officer turned away, Bill went out of the trench into the fire to be with his friend Jim. 
A little bit later, he returned alone to the trench and a hell of billets. And the commanding officer snapped, why did you do that? I told you he wasn't going to make it. He's dead, isn't he? Bill said, yeah, he is. The commanding officer replied, that was the stupidest thing you could have ever done. And Bill mumbled, but he was alive when I got there. He was alive. And he said to me, Bill, he said, I knew you would come. I knew you would come. What we need to do at times is to literally risk our life for the sake of those who are hurting. To be the one who covers the back of the one who is in the depths of despair. To be the one who says and goes and says, I will be there for you no matter what happens because I love you, because I care for you. David didn't have that, it seems. So the first thing is that God's presence is doubted by many when great tragedies happen. But secondly, God is the first responder. God is the protector. What happens in these days if something is really bad and it seems like, you know, there's something going on and you're afraid, you're really afraid of what's happening, maybe it's right outside your home, what do you do? What do you do? You call Rob Simmons, right? No, what do you do? You call 911, right? That's what we do. We call 911. Why do we call 911? Why? Because we trust that they're going to send the police. They're going to send a fire truck or somebody to help. That's our first responders. We go to God. We go to them. God is our first responder. That's what David does. Notice what David does in verse 3. He says, but everything that's happening, I'm fleeing. My son's trying to kill me. There are many who are saying God is not going to save him. But he says, but. It's a contrast statement. He's saying, I know. Contrary to everything that's happening around me, I know this. What? What does he say? But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. He's saying, I know that God is the one who is there for me when nobody else is. He's saying, God is going to protect me. He doesn't say God is going to prevent bad things from happening to him. He doesn't say that the attack won't come. The attack will come. But he says God will be a shield. A shield is something that protects from the worst blow. Not to say you won't get hit, but you will get hit. It's saying God is my one who will prevent the worst thing from happening to me from happening. God will protect. God knows what's best. That's faith. That's trust. Charles Spurgeon said, to trust God in the light is nothing. But to trust him in the dark, that is faith. Faith says, I trust that I don't understand what's happening 
but God does, and he do, does what is best for me. Becky's nephew, who is a PCA pastor and also an tr- army chaplain, uh, wrote a blog on, uh, on his church's blog, something that Becky and I were very impressed with. He talks about a very difficult time in his life, and he was writing it for his congregation, and this is what he says. There are times and seasons in our lives that are difficult. There are many days and months when we often ask, Why, Lord? Why is this happening? What are you trying to teach me? How is it? Uh, how easy it is, is it for us to become bitter about the trials and difficulties we face? How quickly do we want to give up when things are a uh, little too inconvenient for us? And he goes on to say, I encourage you to give God prays for the present season of your life. Give him thanks that you have not gotten to this point in your life by chance or coincidence, but according to his divine, holy, infallible plan that will never fail. Why? Because God loves you. God loves you past, present, and future. And he has wonderful things in store for you. That's an attitude towards the difficult things of life that's hard to come by. Because our first inclination is God must not be in this or it would not happen. We're not going to read it again, but you need to read again what you sang just now on the back of the hymnal. Those are sobering words. Those are things that we say, but it takes time and effort to believe them. Those are, those are things that words and truths that are important for us, they're biblical. But yet we don't often turn that way. Look at what David says in verse 4. He says, he says, he called to God. See, he doesn't just believe it. He actually says, I know that's the one who I have to go to. And he went and he called to him because he knew foremost he needed God's help spiritually to overcome this difficult situation. And then he says, he says, God is his glory and the one who lifts up his head. What does that mean? God is his glory. I think we use this word glory too much. We throw it around. God, you know, give glory to God. We say that and we're not even sure what it means. It's like we sing hymns and we aren't even sure, you know, the words. We read them, but we don't really let them sink in. But what does it mean when David says, he is my glory? It means that, God, that David realized God was his significance. God was his meaning in life. God was the one who brought purpose for what he is his life. God is the one who gives him worth. God is the one who says everything else in the world can fall away, but God, you are there. And we rely upon other things to give us significance, right? It's our job. It's our family. It's our children. And don't do that with your children. They'll fail you. Not because they're going to fail. It says children aren't to be the ones we're to look to to give us meaning and purpose. We look to a lot of things to give us meaning and purpose and significance. They'll fail us. But God will never fail us. 
That's what David is saying. God is the one. He's my glory. He's the one that lifts up my head. In other words, he's the one that causes me to look up and say, I will say to the world, you may fail me, but God will never fail me. That's what David is saying in verse 4. The truth is, the truth is that you show how much you trust in God during times of trouble. You trust you show how much you really trust in God during times of trouble. And sometimes we flee from God during times of trouble. We turn and say, God, you can't be the one helping me. We turn and we run away. But God is our shield. But where is a shield? A shield is out front. And when you're running away, there's no protection to you. Because you've got your back to the enemy. God is saying, stand firm. I'm your shield. I'm the one who will protect you. Doesn't mean you aren't going to get hurt. You will. But God is the one who will overcome the most difficult things in your life. No matter what they are, God will do it for you. Because that's who he says he is. So God's presence is doubted during great difficulties. God is the first responder and protector. And then thirdly, God gives rest and assurance. Verse 5 and 6. This is amazing to me. This is what first caught my attention in this psalm. Look at it. David is fleeing for his life. When you read 2 Samuel, he's going from place to place. He's got no second cottage. He's got no second place to live. He's just going from one place to another. And people, some people are throwing stones at him, cursing him, saying, you brought this on yourself. You're terrible. Yet what does he do? According to verse 5 and 6. He lays down and sleeps. He sleeps. He finds rest. Why? Why? Because he's worn out? Because he's tired? No. There's another reason. Look what he says in verse 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He is the one. God, David says, God is the one who takes care of me. God is the one during those difficult times. Tim Keller wrote about this psalm in his devotional. God is the only one who sustains you. The only one who sustains you, whether an army is pursuing you or you are at home in your own bed. Why do people say, no, what do you say to people when they say God is not there? What do you say to people during those really difficult times in their life? What do you say? What do you do? First of all, you acknowledge that they're hurting and you hurt with them. You come alongside of them and say, I grieve with you, I hurt with you. Don't be trite. No matter if it's not even death, it can be other things. It hurts, and that hurt is real. And you acknowledge it, you say, Yes, I understand it. 
You're not like David's friends who mock him. You're there who says, yes, I comfort you. I, I support you. And you counsel them in the least words you can at times. Because they don't need a lot of words. They need someone who's there. And secondly, as a believer who knows and understands that Christ hurt for us. That Christ understands every hurt, every heartbreak. As someone who understands that Christ went through the worst of pain upon this earth, you go with the hope that God will lead you to give them words of hope in Christ. Not in what the world offers, words of hope in what Christ can do for them and what Christ, how Christ can help them. Realizing Christ suffered the worst death of all, suffering for my sins and yours, because he loved me, because he loves me. I received a letter from a former missionary friend of mine who's now a pastor, and he, um, he mainly, his pastoral duties mainly are with elderly people, people who are suffering from cancer and other problems. And he writes in the letter, he says, um, remembering, he says, remember this, Christ is the source of our joy and hope and peace. There are many things that will come this year that are not good, no matter what earthly realities we may encounter. Christ is our hope. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we have the sure promise that Christ will be doing good work through all the adverse experiences of this coming year. He cares about all the things of our life, and we have been given the right to pray for our daily needs, but his ultimate concern is that we would know the peace of Christ that passes all understanding, a peace that comes to those who have experienced the beauty of his redemptive work in their lives through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that our sins have been forgiven because God, out of his mercy, caused his son to suffer my sins. As Dan says, the one agent of life and hope is Yahweh. The one agent of life and hope is God Almighty. I'm going to indulge you or ask you to indulge me. I want you to look in your hymnal, the hymn number uh, 689. We're not going to sing it. It's a hymn that you are well familiar with. You've probably sung many times. Six hundred eighty-nine. Read with me just the first two stanzas. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every he faithfully will remain. Be still, my soul, 
your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And then second stanza, be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice, who ruled them while he dwelt below. We sing those words. And that's the point of David in this psalm. God is the one who still reigns. God is the one who is still there. Be still, my soul, no matter what happens. And know that God is present. Know that God is there in the midst of the storm. Because he cares. Because he loves. And then the last deals with the Lord's Supper that we're about to partake. The last part of David's psalm goes right to the heart of what this is all about. So first, God's presence is doubted during difficult times. Second, God is the first responder and protector. Third, God gives rest and assurance. And fourth, God saves those who call on him. God saves those who call on him. Isn't that what David says in verse 7 and 8? Depending on your translation, it's either going to, he uses the same word twice, same root word in verse 7 and 8. Some translations will say, save me and others deliver me. And then in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Or others say, from the Lord comes deliverance. God is the one. What's the word mean that he uses there? The word means to defend. God is the one who defends. Help. God is the one who helps. He's the deliverer. God is the deliverer who delivers me out of my funk, out of my despair. He's the preserver. God is the one who preserves my life even when I don't deserve it. He's the rescuer. He is the one who keeps me safe. He is the savior. He is the revenger. He is the victor. He wins the battle, not me, no matter what happens. It's the Lord that I look to. A good friend of mine died in a, he's a pastor, died in a car accident. He and one of his children. His brother is also a pastor. And in the funeral, at the funeral of, the, of this pastor, who's a friend of mine and the son, the elder brother looked at those two coffins sitting there at the funeral and said, I hate sin! Because that's the problem. It's the sin that has brought the terrible effect that we experience. It's not that he hates God. He realizes it's sin that we bring into the world. The sin that we have that brings terrible consequences in our own life and the lives of others. It's sin that reigns so often in people. It's sin that so often I don't fight against. It's that sin. And David, here in verse 7 and 8, says, But, but, I know my Redeemer. We probably understand more about salvation than David did because we look past, we look back to the time when Christ died 
for our sins. We look back to what Christ has accomplished. It's finished. Christ reigns in heaven. He has done the work for us. And now we come in confidence that my Savior lives. In spite of all the sin, in spite of all the problems, in spite of all the hurt I have, I know, I know that my salvation is sure in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is not that I deserve anything. You deserve it because you are the one. When the world doesn't make sense, when hurt comes, when there are problems because of what I have done, when there are problems because of the sins of others, you are there. You're the one who gives us the confidence that we need. You're the one who says, I am present. I am the one who loves you. I am the one who loves you in a way that you can never understand. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have given us that promise. You have fulfilled that promise. You remind us of that truth over and over again. May we leave here remembering my Redeemer lives no matter what happens. And he alone gives me my hope, my confidence, my peace. Oh, Lord, do that in my life, in the life of each person here. Remind us that you are our God and Savior. Amen.